Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Gadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, and as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram, Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has bought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of your slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Bathsheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch this boy die. 
As she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and, the, and an angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift up the boy and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with the water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. When he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone. I'm Nick. I'm one of your pastors here at church, and this is Rowena. We're doing things a little different today. We're going to um, <clears throat> tackle these Genesis passages together. You right? Oh, nice. They have been a pretty wild set of stories, and that's because Genesis is is pretty messy. I don't know if you like have this, you know time in your life where you read the Bible and went to Sunday school or whatever, and it's just like, oh, yeah, Father Abraham had many sons. You know, it all seems like nice and clean and easy. But what struck me more and more as I've come to this passage and this series is really messed up. Like, it's, it's proper crazy. Genesis is a book of just absolute chaos, and it is easy for us to distance ourselves from it we can't make the mistake that the characters in the stories make where they minimize their sin and try and hide and they're a bit blind to what's truly going on. Genesis isn't just this crazy story that happened back there. This is our story. This is the story of our faith. This is the story upon which we stand. And it's our story in the sense that we are no different from these messed up crazy people. And what Genesis is teaching us is really opening our eyes to how nuts we can be within ourselves with all the sin that dwells here. But more importantly, it's revealing to us the faithfulness of God, the master storyteller who takes terrible things and and uses them for good, who takes us in all of our mess and brings beauty out of it. So we're going to look at Hagar look at Sarah, and we're going to see the faithfulness of God. So the first one is Hagar. So if you've got your Bibles open, you're going to want them open. Chapter 16, we're introduced to this woman named Hagar. We learn in verse 2 that she is a slave. She has been reduced to a piece of property to be used or discarded as her owner chooses in the same way that you might use a tool. Useful, but that's about it. She's not just a slave, she's an Egyptian slave. So she's a part of this community, this nomadic tribal culture, and she's an outsider, she's a foreigner. She's been taken from her homeland, potentially from any of her friends and family, and she's, she's now this foreigner in a, in a court of people who treat her terribly. She's handed over for sex. Don't, don't miss how gruesome this is. Look at verse 2. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Notice the language. It doesn't say, go go to Hagar. It says, go go to my slave. Have have sex with her. Go and fornicate with that one. Like, it's it's the vulgarness of it. It's it's awful. She's lost all agency over her life. Look at verse 3. It says, Sarai, his wife, took 
her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband. There is not a single word spoken by Hagar in this entire exchange. She's simply picked up and given over to Abram for sex. And after Abram has slept with her, impregnated her, married her against her will, Sarai is so upset that she says in verse 6, look at this, your slave is in your hands, do with her whatever you think is best. It's not really a great way to treat your newly pregnant bride. You'd assume that now that she's been made a wife, that she might have been given more rights and responsibilities. She's still treated like property. She's still discarded. And this is part of the story of our faith. Abraham, the fountain of all God's promises. This is, this is it. What do you think, Ro? <laughs> sin, and particularly how the sin of Abraham and Sarah affects Hagar. So in a nutshell, sin poisons everything. Now, when I was a kid, when I was very little, I loved fairy tales. I grew up on fairy tales. And you know, there's an awful lot of poisoning that goes on in fairy tales. (laughs) Everyone gets poisoned at some point. You know the story of Snow White? She bites into the poisoned apple and she falls to the ground in a slumber as if she was dead. Well, we have right at the very beginning of Genesis, the original poisoned apple. Mm. Adam and Eve bite into this apple and death enters the world. Everything gets poisoned. Creation is poisoned. Nature, people, the way we treat one another. And most terribly, the way we see and the way we treat God. We're separated and cut off from God. And one of the worst effects of sin that we've seen throughout the decades, throughout the the centuries, throughout time, is the way that we as human beings use other people. Particularly the way we as human beings, if we have some power or status, the way we'll use those who don't have it. And Nick's already covered that. As we said, Sarai, I'm going to be referring to, I'm going to try and refer to Sarai when she's referred to as Sarai in the Bible. And then I'll switch to Sarah a little bit later. I hope that's not confusing. (laughs) But Sarai is a woman who does have power and status, but she has allowed herself to be poisoned by her disappointment, by her disbelief, by her lack of faith, by her pain, by her distrust in God. And because of this, she uses Hagar, a woman who has been created in the image of God, as pretty much, as Nick has said, an object, Mm. using those words that Nick said, took, gave, as if she was nothing more than a bag of wheat or a cup or a bag of coins, and Abram sleeps with Hagar. Just as Adam, back in Genesis, takes a bite of the apple at his wife's suggestion, Abram sleeps with Hagar at the suggestion of his wife. And this is because in both instances, human beings thought that they would live outside the promises of God. And what's the result? Brokenness, separation, hurt, despair and sin has such a knock-on effect. In verse 4, upon finding out she was pregnant, Hagar despises her mistress. And then in verse 6, Sarai's mistreatment of Hagar causes her to flee, to be sent to the desert where she's facing certain death. And there is a powerful lesson in this particular part of the story. We cannot let our own experiences, our own pain, and our own disappointment or distrust in God kind of change us or morph us into the kind of people who would treat other people poorly just to give vent to our own pain or to get what we want. Mm. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 16, Hagar is in the desert all alone and pregnant, all because of a couple who didn't wait on the Lord and because of the consequences of their actions and what it did in her heart. 
And can you imagine, I can only try to imagine how Hagar would have been feeling at this point. She had nothing. She had no resources. She had no relationships apart from this tiny baby in her womb. I imagine she would have just been utterly devoid of hope, just ready to drop to the ground, ready to die. But I'm going to read um, verse 7 because I left out the most important part. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Now, Hagar may have thought she was all alone, but she certainly was not. Mm. And I love that word found because it implies an intentional search by God. I mean, he could have just said the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar and that would have been wonderful. That would have still been a miracle. But we see that word found and it marks Hagar out as someone who was lost, someone who was known to be lost, someone who was the object in that moment of God's attention and desire and concern. Now, Nick's going to talk in a minute about the questions that the Lord asks Hagar, but look at how God addresses her. He addresses her by her name. Mm. And this is the first time in the scripture that we hear her name mentioned. As Nick said, she's just referred to as the slave prior to that. The Lord knows Hagar's name. And just a reminder, the Lord knows your name. Mm. Now then, he gives her a promise telling her that she is going to give birth to a son who is also going to be the father of multitudes, and he is going to be called Ishmael, and that means God hears. So God has seen Hagar, God has found Hagar, and God has heard Hagar. And by doing this and then giving a pretty wild description of the kind of man that Ishmael is going to become, the Lord is promising Hagar a future beyond the desert that she's in now. She's going to live to see her son grown. And Hagar, and this is so great, Hagar then gives the Lord a name. And she is the first person in the whole of Scripture to do this. She dares to give the Lord a name, and she calls him the God who sees me. Now, we talk a lot about hierarchy and structure and that kind of stuff, but so many times in the Bible, God just throws that out the window. This woman had no spiritual authority or authority of any kind, and yet she gets to be the first person to name God. And what does she say? She says, I have now seen the one who sees me. And one of my favorite themes throughout scripture is God is the God who sees us, not just one in a crowd of many, but he sees us as individuals. He knows us intimately and he knows everything about us. And I don't think we can look at this part of scripture without fast forwarding hundreds and hundreds of years to the New Testament where we see Jesus, where we see Jesus talking to another woman who has found herself alone and who also is at a well. Now, in John 4, verse 6 in the New Testament, we see Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Now, here is another woman that the Lord knows and sees completely. Here is another woman who is an outcast. She is perhaps a victim of her circumstances. She's a woman who's had many husbands. She may be the reason for her own problems, but also she may just be the victim of a society where women had no place apart from within a marriage. But Jesus dignifies this woman, a foreigner, a scandalous Samaritan woman, by asking her questions, by trying to find out about her, by seeing into her life and then offering himself as her rescue. And I spoke about the poison of sin earlier, and for every poison, there has to be a life-giving antidote in order to ensure survival. And Jesus offers this woman living water by offering himself. And this is foreshadowed all the way back in Genesis. 
Hagar, the outcast foreign woman, is shown a well of water in verse 20, in chapter 21, by the God who sees her. God opens her eyes and shows her the well of water. So God has come to Hagar's rescue, and he has also come to our rescue through his son, Jesus, who is our living water. It's mm, good. It's really good. We were laughing um, earlier this week about verse 8. I love this. Look at this. Verse 8, when um, God speaks to Hagar through the angel, he says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Does that remind you of a song? Where have you come from? Where did you go? Where did you go? You, I'm so sorry. It's going to be in your head all week. Cotton Eye Joe. But, but God doesn't need to ask these questions, right? God Almighty, eternal creator, knows all things, found her in the middle of nowhere because he is God. <clears throat> he asks her these questions. Where have you come from? Well, she's come from slavery, abuse, and rape. Where are you going? Potential death in the wilderness filled with bitterness and hatred at what's been done to her. Why does God ask these questions? I think he asks these questions because he's about to change the trajectory of her life. He knows where she's been and all that's happened to her and all that she's done. He knows where this journey ends. And he's saying, I see you, I know you, and I will make something far greater out of your mess than you could have ever imagined. She promises... It doesn't really sound like a nice promise to us to say in verse 10, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. To have more children doesn't seem like that much of a blessing when she's, you know, she's got a child that she potentially didn't even want. But you've got to realize this mirrors the promise that God made to Abram and Sarai. He said, you will have descendants like the stars. And now this slave woman who's been mistreated by those people is being promised the same thing. He changes the trajectory of her life. It sends her back, but with the blessing that he will be with her, that he sees her, that he will give her what she needs. This is, this is just the gospel right in the beginning. God sees you. God knows you. If you've ever felt forgotten and unseen, God sees you. God loves you. God knows you. He sees Hagar in her slavery. He sees us in ours. He sees our slavery to sin to all the things in our life that we are addicted to, to try and make sense of who we are and what we're doing. He sees us in our slavery, and He comes to us. He finds us. What I love about Jesus is the way Jesus comes to us is incredible. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave being made in human likeness. Think about that. God sees this slave woman and promises her a future. God sees your slavery, and in order to promise you a future, he becomes a slave in your place. That Philippians verse continues to say he became a slave so that he could become obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that you don't have to suffer that penalty, so that you don't need to wrestle with that sin anymore. He takes it from you, a slave in every way, so that you might be set free, that you might become the person that you are meant to be. And I just really want to make this clear. If you feel forgotten by God, you feel like no one sees you in your life right now, it's not true. God sees you and God loves you. So we're going to shift our focus to Sarai now. And in between chapters 16 and 21, she has her name changed to Sarah. And I'll talk about that um, a little bit later. But we've already covered the fact that she treated Hagar so poorly. 
But what makes her treatment of Hagar even worse is remembering what happened to her in Genesis 12. So do you remember last week in Genesis 12 when Abram and Sarai arrived in Egypt? Abram was so afraid that he was going to be killed by Pharaoh because of how beautiful Sarai was that he passed her off to Pharaoh as his sister. So she gets taken and placed in Pharaoh's palace. Now, it's not explicitly stated that Pharaoh slept with Sarai, but at the very least, she was certainly passed as a commodity from one man to another, less a human being and more as a bargaining tool in order to save Abram's life, which incidentally God had already promised to bless and to prosper. So Sarai knew what it was like to be given and taken. She knew what it was like to be placed into a strange and possibly very dangerous environment. She knew what it was like to be a foreigner, alone and isolated in a household that wasn't her own. So why does she inflict this same thing on Hagar? Well, as I mentioned before, yes, there is that power dynamic. She did have the authority to do what she wanted with Hagar, but I don't think that's why she did it, just because she could. Sarai had been barren for over a decade at this point. And for any women, for any parents who are trying to conceive a child, the inability to do so is excruciating. Mm. And adding to this was the disgrace and the shame that came with being barren in that culture of that time. So every single month, Sarai would have been reminded that she was not pregnant that she had not conceived, and this was going on for years and years and years and years and years. Sarai was a woman who was in pain, and it's really easy when you know the outcome of the story to say things like, well, she should have trusted the Lord. She should have just trusted God's promises, and so should you. We should all just trust God. But yes, theoretically, but have you ever been in the middle of a desperately awful and horrible situation where you are so overcome with sadness and grief and confusion that you can't see clearly? Your pain becomes so overwhelming that it's not possible to see God or to find where he is or believe or act on his promises. Now, I'm not excusing Sarai's actions, but the Bible says in Proverbs 31 that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And it's possible that this is where Sarai had found herself. Sarai had started to doubt that the promises of God were really for her. So what does she say in Genesis 16? The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, this was Sarai's first mistake, not believing God's promises. But then she moved on with her next mistake when she started to really badly mistreat Hagar so badly that Hagar had to flee to the desert to face her chances there. And then in chapter 21, this happens a second time when Sarai orders Abram to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And when your heart is sick, sometimes this causes compassion and empathy to be eaten away a little bit. You become a different person and you're no longer able to focus on the well-being of other people. You can become blind to another person's perspective, what another person is going through. And you can doubt in the goodness of God and you can disbelieve and this is what poisons us. Sin takes the focus off other people and it places it on ourselves. Mm. You see that a sin compounds, right? Like she, it is amazing how blind Sarai is to what she's doing. Like it's incredible. We've seen go, take, go sleep with my slave, build a family through her. But then verse 5, when it starts to fall apart, what does she say to Abram? You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. You'd be like, Abram be like, you guys seeing this? Like, you told me to do that. You told me to sleep with that girl and have that child. How is this my fault? 
And, and you, you could feel like, okay, maybe she's just blame shifting because she feels responsible. But I think she's genuinely blind to what she's done because look at how that verse finishes. It's all on you, Abram. This is all your problem. But then she says, may the Lord judge between you and me. She's so convinced that she's in the right that she invokes the God of justice to step into her situation. That's crazy. Sin blinds her crazily, and we're laughing, but sin has blinded you too. Sin has blinded me. We are so easily able to diminish the things that we have done and to elevate the things that have been done to us. We've, we often put ourselves in the place of the hero or the one who's been harmed and hurt, and it's just ridiculous. If someone was reading our story in the same way, they would be laughing, just as we are laughing at Sarai. Sin has blinded her incredibly. But the hardest part to see is that sin has blinded her to the faithfulness of God. Of course, this was such a hard situation, as Rose already covered, but she is completely ditching the promises of God after time and time again of him coming through. You've got God not completely abandoning Sarai after this situation. You've got the next chapter in 17, where God reiterates his whole covenant again, just so that you don't be confused. Don't go find another slave girl. I've got you, okay? My promises are true and they're good. He then gives Sarai a whole new name, which means the mother of nations. Just so you be really clear, I'm going to do it. And, and, and just to make it even clearer, I'm going to give you a son by Sarai. Don't go find anyone else to have sex with, right? I got you, I got you, I got you. And then you get to verse eight, chapter 18, and Sarah, now Sarah, laughs at the promises that God's made. And then when God says, hey, did you just laugh at those promises? She's like, oh, no, nah, that wasn't me. And she, just, she backtracks and freaks out. She's like, oh, no. She, this sin is just compounding, and she's just spiraling. She just cannot see the goodness of God. And I think that's so true for us. We, just, we get so mired down in the thick of our sin that we just can't, can't do anything about it. We try and climb out on our own. We try and fix the issues on ourselves, and we push God away, and we push God away, and we push God away. But that's just completely wrong because God is faithful even to this woman, even after everything she's done, even after everything she has experienced. He just, he's with her. It's amazing. Yeah, so poor, um, poor Sarai hasn't been getting a great rap so far. Um, we've seen a little bit of her dark side, but as um, Nick said, God is so faithful to her in spite of everything, of her doubt and her disobedience and her failure to trust him. God does exactly what he says he's going to do. And in chapter 21, we read, The Lord was gracious to Sarah. So she's had her name changed, um, as Nick said, in chapter 17. And her name does now mean mother of multitudes. The names Sarai and Sarah, they're quite interchangeable. But Sarai is, means kind of my princess. It's more of an individualistic name, meaning that she's special within her own family. But when she's called Sarah, it's a princess, princess of multitudes. And so God has actually stamped on her, as Nick said, this promise. Hmm. Keep going. You are going to be a woman of stature and power. Now, I'd want to spend a bit of time in chapter 18 as well. So as, as we know, we saw that brilliantly acted out in our um, <laughs> kids' talk. Um, the Lord comes again, and he says again that Sarah is going to have a son. And on this occasion, Sarah hears. She hadn't necessarily heard that directly from God herself, but she does this time. And then she laughs to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my, my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Now, there's many kinds of laughs out there. 
And I know this is an inference, but it's safe to say, I think, that underneath this particular laugh, there was a whole lot of disbelief <laughs> and resignation, bitterness perhaps. Um, and the Lord heard that. The Lord addressed Sarah's laugh. He knew exactly what was behind it. But God could have reacted in anger. He could have disinherited the two of them. He could have done whatever he wanted. He was God, but he doesn't. What does he do? He repeats his promise. He just remains faithful and he declares, is anything too hard for the Lord? This is our God. He does not treat us as our sins deserve and he is infinitely more faithful, more compassionate, more loving, more patient than we will ever know. And the Bible from start to finish, one of the attributes of God that I love over and over again is that the Lord is slow to anger. Mm. He, taught, he calls himself slow to anger. He is called slow to anger. And haven't we seen this in these chapters? He does not react in anger. And I love the divine humor of God too. It's just, it's so funny. Sarah lies to God. He calls out her laughing and he's like, yes, you did laugh. But then in chapter 21, finally, the promise is fulfilled. Chapter 21 begins this way. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, <laughs> and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. We learn that Sarah becomes pregnant and gives birth to Isaac 25 years after the promise that had, of God had been given. I don't know if anyone here is waiting on a promise or has been praying for something for decades and decades, but these chapters are incredibly comforting. But verse 6 is where I'm going to wrap up here, where we have Sarah saying, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears this will laugh with me. So God, a year ago, heard her wry, cynical, sarcastic, disbelieving laugh. And he knew that in a year's time, this laugh was going to sound a whole lot different. Mm. So God's divine humor, it took the faithless laugh of Sarah and he used it to prove his faithfulness to her. So good. So good. My, one of my favorite parts, again, if you've got chapter 21 open in front of you, um, you know, she's had that little moment of laughter. And then verse 7, and she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Who would have said that? The answer is God, repeatedly, again and again and again and again. She's just like, oh my gosh, what a miracle. Who would have seen this? Come on, dude, you've been promised this this entire way through. And I just, I just know that that's me. <laughs> promised again and again and again by God and yet so quick to doubt, to be like, oh, wow, who would have thought that God would come through in the end? It's, God is so patient. The line that came to me is um, in, in that song, oh, what's it called? Anyways, the song is a, a beautiful hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And it's this beautiful reality that God knows that we wander. God knows that we're fickle and we doubt, and yet he is patient. He is faithful, and he promises to take our wandering hearts and seal, them by, seal it by their grace, by his grace, and seal us for heaven, his courts above. He is so good to us that he carries us all the way through, despite all of our wandering. It's, it's exactly what Sarah experienced, and it's the journey that you and I are on. He, he makes laughter from our sin. He, he takes the mess of our lives, and we're going to stand in heaven and look back and look at how beautifully God took the mess that we experienced and the mess that we dealt and how he turned that into something marvelous and something beautiful. I think we're going to spend years upon years in heaven just laughing and delighting in the masterpiece that this master storyteller has, has made from our lives. It's incredible. So Hagar, 
has experienced the faithfulness of God so beautifully in being seen. Sarah has experienced the goodness of God in that patient kindness and the promises that were fulfilled. There's so many things that you could take from these stories. So, right, right. what was the thing that you took most? Um, all through when I was preparing, um, Psalm 103, verse 10, I mentioned it before. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And I was just thinking about that divine imbalance between what we receive from God as opposed to what we deserve. So the Bible talks about giving us beauty for ashes, turning our mourning into dancing, turning our sorrow into joy. There's just this uneven exchange that is always in our favor. And yeah, obviously in my life, there have been many times, I mean, like all of us, where we have acted in a way that was not as we should have acted and God has repaid us in the opposite way. And so for me, um, I'll just be <clears throat> share something personal. There was a time in my life back in the early 2000s um, where I Why was... you look at me like just now? <laughs> How old were you, were Nick? Were you born <laughs> In the early 2000s, I was living in England and I'd been a Christian for nearly 10 years, so I should have known better. But against... God's warnings against the Bible's teaching to me, against my friend's warning, against a feeling that I had from the Lord. I entered into a relationship that I should not have entered into um, because I wanted to. And for the first three months, it was great. It went really well. And then after that, it just spiraled downhill mm. and it was very, very bad. And at the beginning, I thought, oh, this is going well. Perhaps I wasn't hearing from God. Maybe this guy's going to become a Christian. He wasn't a Christian and maybe it's all going to work out, but it didn't. And so I remember a point we'd been going out for a few months and it was just horrible. And I was, I'd come out of church and I was walking along the Thames down by South Bank. I can remember it so well. And I was praying and I was saying, God, help. I'm an absolute mess, but I just can't end this. I can't break up with this guy. And I heard the Lord speak so clearly. And, you know, he could have said something like, you must decide or <laughs> you must leave your life of sin or you must do this or that, whatever. But he didn't. He just said, Rowena, I will never leave you. Hmm. And that's what he said. And at the time, it just felt like he'd wrapped me in his arms and I was just a little girl with my dad. And that moment was just the anchor that helped me to get out of that relationship. Hmm. Um, it was just too, a choice. Who are you going to choose? Like everlasting love that is never going to leave you or this crazy mixed up relationship. But then the way he treated me afterwards was incredible. I was new in my church. He brought this girl into my life who became my best friend, who led me all through that horrible breakup period. I ended up going to a connect group where I met two of my best friends who I'm still best friends with now. So he ended that relationship and gave me lifelong friendships. And then I got a chance to sing on the worship team. I'd always wanted to sing worship. That was the deep desire of my heart. So I thought that this guy was the desire of my heart, but he gave me the true desire of my heart. He did so many things in that period that I just did not deserve and I did not expect. And so that is a period of time that I'm very grateful for, but it showed me over and over again his faithfulness and how um, when we repent and when we turn to him, he showers mercy mm. and goodness and love. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I've seen that outworked in my life. That's good. Thanks. Turning, laugh, what about you, Nick? turning sin to laughter. Um, I, I mentioned this before, but I just read these stories and I just go, I am Sarah again and again and again and again. Um, so if you feel that way, you know, come talk to me later. But I, I, I often, what I, what I feel I resonate with Sarah is that she did believe the promise Time went on, she started to doubt. Time went on, she messed up and fell into sin. Time again, God came and offered the promise again, and then just cycle, 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 cycle. I feel like I am Sarah so often, but the faithfulness of God is greater than my sin. 
faithfulness of God is greater than your sin. Patience of God is enough, even for me. Um, I think of that, another song, um, this one I know, What a Beautiful Name, when he says, my sin was great, your love was greater. I often think of that line that, that, yes, my sin is great. I just stuff it up constantly. And people would laugh at my story if it was written down. And yet his love was greater. That when, when we are faithless, he is faithful. When we feel forgotten, he's faithful. When we feel like we're living right, when we're not, he's faithful. So for me, the line that God has given me is that I am never too far gone from the faithfulness of God. So I'll I'll leave that with you. You're never too far gone from the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Should I pray? Do you pray? I'll pray. Oh God, you are so good. Thank you for showing us your patience through this messed up story. Thank you for showing us your patience in our story. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we have a conclusive thing to look to, to say you are loved and you are forgiven. Lord, for all of our experiences, whether we feel like a Hagar or a Sarah, Lord, please, would you meet us here? Would you show us your faithfulness again? Would you lead us to the place that you would have us? Would you give us patience upon your promises? Would you carry us through again and again that we might know Jesus, love Jesus, and follow Jesus with everything that we are? We pray all this in his name.